Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll explore the ethical concerns that arise when a child or teenager and his or her parents disagree with the medical team's treatment recommendations. So we wouldn't look to the adolescent patient typically um, to have authority to make their own decisions, uh, but we want them to be in agreement. Then we'll meet a graduate student whose research may lead to a way to restore vision. One of the major goals in vision research is to restore lost vision. It's, it's something that we look to in the field um, find better solutions for within the next 30 years. And we'll talk about how to address the health issues that are common among workers with low-wage jobs. And so sometimes work-related stress and the emotional toll that the jobs take is more of a feature than, say, the actual physical labor. All that, a checkup from the neck up and a visit from our healing muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a vision researcher working on her doctorate will explain how her research could lead to a way to restore vision. Then, an occupational health researcher will explain the health issues that are common among workers with low-wage jobs. But first, Two bioethicists will discuss what happens when a child or adolescent and his or her parents disagree with a medical team's treatment recommendations. As children mature, they develop the capacity to make informed decisions about their health care. Developmental maturation allows over time for increasing inclusion of the child or adolescent's opinion in medical decision-making and clinical practice. When all parties agree on a specific plan for treatment, the path is clear. However, when the adolescent and or his parents uh, disagree with the recommended medical plan, things can get complicated. Here to discuss the legal and ethical principles surrounding this issue are two bioethicists from Upstate Medical University's Department of Bioethics and Humanities, Dr. Thomas Curran, who has also worked in neonatal intensive care, and Robert Olick, who also teaches courses in medical ethics and health law to medical students. Thank you both for being here. Good morning, Appreciate Amber. It. Good morning. So um, I, I know you've got a case that we want to talk about. What, what's the youngest age that someone can have a say in their medical care? Well, uh, it depends. Okay. And uh, some, uh, some adolescents are more mature than others. I am the father of three boys. I am told that girls mature more quickly. Uh, I can't refute that at this stage <laughs> of my life. The, uh, so, but in general, in general, somewhere around the age of 14, uh, Kids are, most kids are felt to have the ability to understand treatment options and their consequences uh, in order to wade through dis, uh, decisions. That being said, under the age of 18, your parents have ultimate decisional oh, authority, okay. period. Right. But this is really, what we're, uh, the interesting element to this from the, from the bioethical standpoint is uh, ideally you can have a situation where the adolescent the adolescent's parents and the healthcare team all agree on a plan that works for everyone. That's the that's the ideal situation. We tend to get involved when there's some disconnect between one of those three. Uh, groups. So it may be the parents disagree with the child, or any of the three can disagree, disagree with, with it. the doctor. In the, in the case I'm going to present, uh, there was a case in which the parents and the adolescent disagreed with the medical team oh. as to how to proceed. So this was a 15 year old uh, boy. 
who had a very curable form of leukemia. And standard therapy for this cancer consisted of um, having four cycles of chemotherapy that was subsequently followed by six weeks of radiation. And at the end of the first portion of this, the four cycles of chemotherapy, the parents and the, ch the adolescent said that they did not want to pursue radiation. So this was very concerning to the, to the, uh, to the medical team. And just so, just so people understand it, in this type of cancer, if you have the chemotherapy and the radiation, you have a 95% chance of having five-year survival. So it's a very curable form of cancer. If you just have the chemotherapy and skip the radiation, you still have a 50% chance of having a five-year survival. And if the cancer reoccurs, you can have an additional bout of chemotherapy and additional radiation, and you'll still have an 80 to 90% chance of having five-year survival. So the numbers are important That's because right. everyone weighs what is reasonable to them. So in, we were consulted by the, the, the medical care team because they felt that they, this child was being put in harm's way by not acquiescing to have the radiation. What, what was the reasoning for not wanting the radiation, aside from the fact that nobody wants to have radiation if they don't need it, mm -hmm. but what, were, what was the family and the child? Well, I think part of what they were thinking about was um, obviously both the prognosis and the risk-benefit um, discussion. Uh, and in that, it's important to note that the doctor plays a very key role in how the information is presented. You know, for example, is it a 60% chance of survival or a 40% chance of not surviving? And there are some studies that show that the um, way that information is presented and the ordering of information that's presented to families and patients makes a difference in their decision making. Mm. Um, uh, but I think this is a case where you're also looking at a family and an adolescent patient who have had experience with the treatment, with the disease and with the treatment. Uh, and so in a sense, they are in a position to make more informed decisions about what potentially lies ahead for them and what the uh, benefits and, and drawbacks are because they've been through that experience uh, previously. And, and in this case, he was clinically better after the chemo. Chemo. I mean, he, he, he was back to his old self, mm -hmm. and the radiation is really done to or minimize the chance of a recurrence. In addition to that, uh, they were part of a faith-based community, and they had pursued alternative medical therapy, holistic medicine, which we're you know, totally supportive of, uh, and they felt that um, they would like to see how this all played out. Um, they, there was a I don't want to say there was a distrust of uh, modern medicine, but they, they certainly were open to all, various forms of therapy. Uh, and so in, in this case, they were not, they were intelligent. They, they knew, they brought the numbers of the 95% and the 50 They, they had done, done the research. research. Okay. They were smart. And, uh, and they also raised the question of, well, isn't it true that radiation can lead to cancer? The, the therapy, and the answer is, it's rare, but yes. And so they were, um, they were very thoughtful people, and they, uh, and, and they had done their homework. And I think when, when the, one of the first things that we wanted to check when we did the consult, we, we wanted to make sure that the parents and the, and the adolescent 
were working together on this. So we felt it was very important to talk to each of them separately. You don't want to have coercion or, or, or any sort of, um, you want everyone to be speaking, freely speaking their mind. And when we talked to the, the, the son and the parents separately, it was clear that they loved each other deeply. Um, and they were very much a, a unit. So this was, it had nothing to do with that. We eliminated that whole element. Uh, and the other addition, the additional fact here, part of being a faith-based community, they were not, did not accept um, aid from the state for medical treatment, which I had not, we had not previously considered. Mm -hmm. So that was something to hmm. explore as well. What's the cost of this? That was, you know, what, where, had that, was that something that they were concerned about? Yeah. So, so to, to dive into some of the ethical legal dimensions uh, of this sort of case a, a little bit more. Um, so in this case, the, the parents and the child agreed. Um, and that's where we hope these situations would be, uh, rather than having them disagree. Um, as Tom mentioned earlier, um, the age of majority being 18, uh, an adolescent patient under 18, the parents would have the authority to make decisions, but uh, with a teenage patient, we would uh, certainly want to know what the um, patient's own views were, uh, and we would think about it in terms of sort of consent and assent. So we wouldn't look to the adolescent patient typically um, to have authority to make their own decisions, uh, but we want them to be in agreement. And especially in a case like this where you're talking about uh, radiation treatment, which requires uh, very much the cooperation of the patient and willingness to come for visits and, and go through that um, difficult process, um, you want them to be on board uh, with what the decision would be. And in this case, where some of the uh, values at stake and the beliefs uh, stem from a, a certain faith-based community, uh, we'd also, I think, want to explore uh, the extent to which the child agreed uh, with those beliefs. Uh, because we wouldn't want a situation where the parents were imposing uh, those sure. beliefs on the child uh, against their will and agreement. And everyone's read about those sorts of cases where mm -hmm. children don't receive appropriate medical care because they're not brought to the appropriate um, facility when they're sick, and th this, is th this is not that. Right. This case was entirely different from that, yes. So how did you um, talk with the physicians and, and providers so it's about so it's this? So this is the, thing, the, the really fascinating part about this case to me was that the physicians felt very strongly that not giving radiation was a failure to meet the standard of care. And, and they felt that the family was, being, uh, was preventing that from happening. And in fact, they met as a group and the majority of their group felt that this was um, such a problem that they would they were considering invol involving child protective services huh. which was a, as the eth as the ethics consultant uh, I was um, deeply troubled by this development uh, because it, to me uh, ch child protective services a is no magic bullet for anything I'm glad it exists, but it does, it's not. It doesn't magically fix things. A, B. This was a loving family unit. I mean, I just it seemed uh, just incongruent to me that that, that, that would be. And so what we did uh, we, when we identified that the, that the the cost factor might be an element, we suggested that they explore alternative um, funds that would be available to cover the cost of radiation. Uh, 
just so that they knew it existed, the family. And we asked the uh, radiation oncologist to come and meet with the three of them for a second time and review um, the pros and cons of, radi of the radiation therapies and how it would likely pan out. And so to take a step back, you try and flood the channels with information that will allow people to make, because you can't, if you don't have all the information, you can't make an informed decision. That's mm -hmm. critical. You have to know what the options are. And it sounds like both, if you want to say both sides, the parents and the doctors were wanting what they thought was going to be best for this patient. They were absolutely would have, they would have signed off on that one in a heartbeat. It just happened to be mutually exclusive plans. Right. And the, and the third thing that we did in this case is we sought the opinion of a, another specialist in another state who treats the, this particular um, is it oncologist, pediatric oncologist, to say, is choosing between stopping at just the chemotherapy and holding off on the radiation, is that a reasonable option? That is to say, does standard of care include that treatment arm as well? And this oncologist from um, uh, another uh, Midwestern state said, yeah, I, I think that, that would be a fair, it would be fair to wait and see. Or... It's reasonable. Huh. And so when you had a, so now all of a sudden you have two different medical group, medical viewpoints which are different, but they, they allow for variation in treatment that, is, that meets the standard of care. That creates space to unring the children, child protective services bell and keep that off. That would have been a terrible development. And, and also created space for the family to not feel like, if you tell a family you're going to involve Child Protective Services, it's over. Your relationship is done. And so it, it eliminated that and allowed people to con continue to talk. And uh, ultimately, the, uh, the, I would say somewhat surprisingly to me, the family opted to do the radiation therapy. After all After that was said, huh. but, but it, it, you had to, in order for that to occur, we had to involve, you know, people from out of state, um, financial folks with alternative payment. Th in all fairness, recognizing faith-based community is, is a reason is a, a perfectly legitimate point of view, and, and honoring their. They, I, th I got the sense that they felt like we were working with them. We understood them. We were working with them. We thought, yeah, I, I we understand where you're coming from, and that created. Um, the opportunity to have very open and honest discussions with them. And they got to make a decision rather than have something or feel like something was being forced. Yeah, and that, so from that point of view, that, that's a good outcome. That more information was provided, there was good discussion and communication, and they reached agreement. Um, and in this case, the agreement was to go forward with treatment, uh, which the uh, healthcare team certainly thought was in the best interest of the patient. Um, I think that the point about the um, additional physician consultant opining that it was reasonable not to do so uh, was important from another point of view as well because we normally give parents very wide berth to make decisions for their children because we assume that they act in the best interest of their kids as, as parents do the vast majority of the time uh, and that they know their children better than anybody else. And you can ask the question, well, are there limits to that? So we don't want to say that parents can just make any decisions they want, regardless of the implications for their child. So sometimes we'll talk about the idea that 
um, we have a sort of a limit or a boundary of reasonableness. And when parents are acting unreasonably and the stakes are very high for the child, as they would be in this case, that that might be a justification for uh, not accepting the parent's decision uh, and seeking other recourse as per the suggestion that perhaps Child Protective Services should be called. But in this case, the parental authority was supported by an outside opinion that their uh, choice actually was reasonable within parameters of accepted medical standards. How might the, this have been different if the uh, adolescent and the physicians were on one side and the parents were on the opposing side? Because the parents have the authority over the child, right? Right. So um, that's where the, the ethical dilemma gets really pointed, mm. and, and there are cases uh, like that. Uh, so um, what would happen in that case uh, would be the physician would have to uh, explore uh, further with the patient. Uh, the basis for their decision would start to form judgments about whether the patient uh, was uh, capable enough and mature enough to make his or her own decisions. Uh, and then you'd be in a sort of a gray area ethically and legally. So there are some areas where we, by law, recognize adolescent decision-making uh, separate and apart from their parents and without parental involvement that basically have to do with issues surrounding uh, sex and reproduction and pregnancy and mental, uh, health. mental health and HIV testing. But none of those fit here. So now you're asking the question whether the, uh, you can recognize the patient as being mature to make their own decisions and have the autonomy to do that. Uh, and in some states... Uh, you have to go to court for that. In other states, physicians have some authority to make their judgment themselves. Um, in New York, the situation is very murky, um, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, and uh, so you would reach that judgment, but you would also have to look at the question of who to involve in the discussion because the patient in that situation, knowing that there's a disagreement with the parents, might not want to have that discussion with the parents or might not want the parents to know right. what their decision was. And uh, the general rule, sort of rule of thumb, is that confidentiality follows consent. So if you're looking to the patient to make the decision, that means the decision maker also has authority to control access to information. Um, so it can get very difficult. Interesting. Well, this has been a very interesting case. Thank you both for this discussion. My guests have been bioethicists Dr. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. talk about health issues common among workers with low-wage jobs on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Low-wage jobs carry more occupational health and safety risks for workers than higher-paying jobs. 
Jeanette Zeckler, Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate, has been involved in the Low Wage Workers Health Project since 2013. It's a project with multiple phases that has 559 participating low-wage workers. Jeanette is here to talk about her findings. Welcome, Jeanette. Hello. Thanks for being here. Last time you were here, um, you told us that from 30 to 38% of low-wage workers have pain that they believe is connected to their jobs, mostly musculoskeletal problems, aching feet, uh, backs, knees, headaches, and that most of these workers don't complain because they don't want to risk losing their jobs. Does this continue to be a problem today? Yes, we continue to find uh, similar levels of, of symptoms that people connect to their work. We really do. So what types of um, jobs are we connecting these to? Every, every sector in our economy has low-wage jobs that are either entry-level or just lower-skilled, de-skilled jobs. So we're talking about the people who do the very basics in each field, the cleaners, the clerical workers, the uh, restaurant workers. We'll speak with uh, home health aides, healthcare workers at you know very basic levels, those sorts of workers that are doing uh, retail also, retail cashiers. They're doing the most basic level work in our society. Okay, and that's across industries. Mm -hmm. Let's remind um, listeners what low wage means. What we use is the living wage concept where we consider people to be working with low wages when they can't make a living um, without government help. And in Onondaga County, that's usually between $14 and $15 an hour as just a basic benchmark. And in terms of the characteristics of low-wage workers, we're not talking about um, kids with summer jobs. Right. A lot of these jobs used to be you know, taken up by people who just needed a little bit of extra discretionary income to supplement their families. But what we're finding now is that people across the age lifespan are using these jobs as a way to make a living or an attempt to make a living. And many of these jobs just aren't suited um, for that purpose, really. They have sort of no pathway or little opportunity for pathways. Okay. So tell me about the project methods that you've used in, in this. I think what um, drives me sometimes are the central features of our project methods, which revolve around making dialogues with with adult working people in the community who can then speak back to us. Our activities involve um, innovative activities like body mapping or hazard mapping, where we go and ask them to make pictures of their workplaces and tell us what it's like to work there. And then we interact with some of what we know about workplace health and those kind of interactive sessions are the bedrock of, of what we've found. And that's how we are able to raise the workers' voices and hear from them what their struggles are. And so, you, I mean, businesses must be in on this, too. They must accept you into... How we connect mostly is through community-based organizations that are already serving low-wage workers for another reason. So employers directly haven't been central. It's been more like if there's a community um, um, literacy folks or job placement folks, perhaps um, refugees settling agencies, um, community centers, churches. Those are places where people with low wages may be congregating already, and we go into the city and find where they're already meeting and then engage them in, in those places. Um, so what have you found so far in, um, in this third, third phase now that you've completed? In the, in the third phase, we just really tried to characterize the work conditions. So we're learning about what kind of exposures or problems that arise in the workplace that threaten health uh, happen. 
So for a hairstylist, for example, she may be exposed to a number of chemicals that um, are in her workplace. Or perhaps people are working long hours in which they have to stand for long periods of time. Um, we, we see people working in healthcare having a struggle trying to engage in safe patient handling. They are having difficulty lifting people. Um, or even just the, the sheer amount of work, the demand of the workload on people versus what they really are able to accomplish. Um, so the body wears out if it's overtaxed, right? So a lot of times that's what we're seeing. Um, and many people try to work two jobs, and then that ends up leading to a certain kind of exhaustion that's really hard to exactly make um, measurements of, but you can kind of see the way people are being sort of used up and worn out over time. Well, some of these jobs, by definition, I mean, they're, they're labor, mm-hmm. right? They're strenuous and they're, I mean... Some are, and some are really boring and, and struggle with an emotional component. Say you are a, um, in a call center where you're going to accept angry phone calls, you know, f- phone calls from angry people all day long. It's not exactly physically demanding, but you may be in sort of a, a dank office where the air quality isn't so good, and now you're constantly dealing with the stress of the people on the phone combined with the stress of your supervisor combined with your coworker stress. And so sometimes work-related stress and the emotional toll that the jobs take is more of a feature than, say, the actual physical labor. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of service sector jobs bring, and in healthcare also is a similar thing, although there is some physicalness to um, a lot of the um, you know, certified nursing assistants and home health aides have a physical component too. Sure. Um, also, people are exposed to cleaning agents more than you might think. Uh, so cleaners are using chem- uh, pretty strong chemicals in hospitals and large um, facilities. So we might think we lead a chemical-free uh, life ar- around us, but we're not quite noticing. And that's really a feature of the low-wage work. We're not always noticing what low-wage workers are going through. They're marginalized. They're often invisible, kind of looked right through. And we're not um, taking into consideration that their jobs may have dangers. There's a low commitment to training often on the part of the employers. Has anything surprised you um, about work conditions when, when you started looking into this? Were there any surprises for you? I think one of the most disappointing surprises is the um, strong presence still of racism and discrimination on the job. Um, it, it's still such a constant factor for for many workers, um, many, many stories of unfair labor practices that are hard to actually make a case of, right? They're borderline or and they, people feel the, the stigma or the sense of being discriminated against pretty strongly. So that was a surprise to me. I think I was not surprised to find that some jobs are dangerous and people aren't quite aware of what they're going to be exposed to. They're not, they're not um, trained up front. It's not as upfront, you know, what the kind of conditions they're going to be in. And so that not knowing part is what is difficult for workers to cope with. If they're just not aware, they're not made aware of what potential dangers they may find on the job, they're not able to prevent uh, injury or illness from occurring. Okay, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Jeanette Zeckler. She's Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate. Um, have you come up with solutions, or do you have um, any recommendations? 
we, either in, immediate yeah, or long term? We we're working on recommendations all the time, and very often they arise from specific workers' problems that are brought forward. And I think that, you know, wait, we're, you making low wages in and of itself is a health hazard. Um, many of the studies are showing, and you can see it clearly. Um, as we talk about concentrated poverty in Syracuse, for example, the state of low wages is particularly frustrating. But on top of that, um, I think that one of the quickest and easiest ways that we can address these problems are to concentrate on the fact that workers have a right to be trained uh, on the job and to know ahead of time, you know, the exposures they're going to face and how to protect themselves. And that um, is very frequently glossed over. And so though we can put more attention on that, and also, um, you know, enforcing existing regulations would be um, something we'd like to see um, more strongly and consistently applied. I think we have um, OSHA is underfunded. So with an agency that can't possibly be in all these workplaces, in our city, for example, they can't do the kinds of inspections that sometimes people imagine are going on. The people often say to me, well, don't we have OSHA? Don't we have, like, regulations in place? And we may have many on the books, but very often um, things are going under the radar and people aren't, you know, those workplaces aren't being um, examined for health. So we have to think about ways to bring that um, to light and to um, raise awareness about the health of people at work. So would, would raising the wage for the same work, would that do anything to help improve health? I would think... Um, most of us who work in this field believe that raising wages is a just and reasonable um, thing to do because it's just a matter of dignity. People are working for, um, you know, wages that can't support their health, can't support their their lives, and very basic ways. We're not talking about vacations or extras. We're talking about, you know, food on the table, clothing, educational opportunity. Uh, transportation is a big important problem, also child care. So if we can start shoring up some of those things with decent wages, and I would also add um, jobs that have some kind of interesting nature. So people often report they'd like to be learning more on the job. They'd like to be having a job with a little bit more complexity and that they feel they could rise to that, but then the opportunity isn't there. So if we could begin to create quality jobs, then uh, that would really go a long way, I think, toward the physical and mental health of, of workers. And most of these jobs don't include health insurance coverage either. So that's, that's correct. I mean, that's, you know, they will keep people very often people are kept at a 35 hour or 30 hour um, status so that they have part time status. So they never achieve the ability to get benefits. And if they do have the ability to get benefits, they're often too expensive for them to um, undertake. So that is another um, serious problem, of course. All right, when you talk about workers needing to know their rights, um, what rights are you talking about? What can they do? Um, mm -hmm. Because I mean, if they fear losing their job by complaining. Right, so there's two components to knowing your rights. One component is knowing what they are. And what they are, in a nutshell, is that they have the right to a healthy and safe workplace under the OSHA Act 1970. And so it is the employer's responsibility to provide that. And so they have a basic right to that. They have a right to know what materials they're using and to know um, more about the health and safety of those um, materials and chemicals or whatever it is that occurs on the job. They also have the right to refuse dangerous work. 
So if they arrive at work and something is dangerous, such as there's a violent customer at their cash registers or there is an imminent um, odor you know, emanating from somewhere, they have a right to go to, the, to their supervisor and say that this is a dangerous situation. I'm willing to stay and work, but I find that this is you know, going to impact my health. And people often need to know how to navigate some of those rights. So the two components are knowing what those rights might be, also how would I use them? In what way would I be approaching? How would be, what is the most effective strategy for approaching your employer when you have a concern about your health at work? Good point. So those two things are components of what we try to help people know. What would you do next and what's really reasonable given that you may fear fear retaliation? Sure, sure. Well, what are the next steps of this project? What's the next phase? Well, this project has actually moved on and um, began to expand in other counties. So we received some funding from the New York State Department of Labor to expand to the southern tier and to the north country. And those expansions, and also in the capital district, those expansions are helping us learn more, helping us reach more um, workers, and helping us understand some of the subsets of workers that we might want to take a focus on. Um, So as we run into problems, we can look at specific occupations and delve more deeply into what what those occupations' problems might be, such as home health age, which is the fastest-growing low-wage occupation, or hairstylists who are under um, new, constantly having new chemicals that they're exposed to, and they're not really aware of the potential health impacts that are faced that they face. Um, also, retail uh, folks are, you know, struggling with how much they have to stand in one place and are socially isolated. So, as we can attack those particular problems. We can uh, help workers with solutions, often, again, revolving around training, getting better training, getting better communication uh, skills in sort of how to approach management when there's problems on the, on the job. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. My guest has been Occupational Health Clinical Center's Director of Research and Special Projects, Jeanette Zeckler. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. The last words, or the family tree and happy as the grass was green. Well, folks, often when I sit down, or rather sit, stand, sit, stand, down, up, down, up, because research shows sitting too much is the new smoking health-wise. Anyway, when I start, got you there, didn't know which way I was headed, did you? When I start writing a new checkup, if it's bumpy deciding which topic to choose of the several my alleged mind has popped up, I sometimes ask myself what I would choose if it was my very, very, very last checkup before I lie down for the big sleep, (laughs) as in no standing up and roaming around ever after like in sniffing the roses from below ground. Anyway, I did that this time, and here, hot off the neurons, is my answer in a roundabout sort of way. I just got back from Ireland, home of many roundabouts, and the ancestral home of my immigrant father, also called the Old Sod, 
Ireland, that is, not my father. He, he wouldn't have liked that. My wife and I met our two sons, i.e. the new sods in Dublin, with their charming fiancés, i.e. the new sod-in-laws-to-be. And together we visited my cousin, sod of my father's sister, and his wife and their son, and my little-known second cousin, daughter of my grandfather's brother's son, and her two sons, my second cousins once removed. Got all that? I just about do. Then one night, my wife and I, and sons and fiancés, and cousin and wife, and second cousins once removed, were in a pub in the wee hours, sipping local brews, chatting. My cousin teased, here are the six O'Neill boys and their fortunate others. And we laughed, me marveling at the loving glow between all of us O'Neill sods, connected like new shades of green sprouted from the ageless genes of my great-grandfather, James O'Neill, the oldest sod himself, who is in a way still growing and roaming above ground in us. Later, as we were heading to the plane home, we reviewed the trip highlights. The countryside so incredibly green, the monuments older than the pyramids, the 700-foot cliffs of moor, and the Irish History Museum with the ancient gold jewelry and the stunningly preserved people buried and mummified in the bogs eons ago. Then my son added, the best thing was being with family. Yes, and those will be my last words. The best thing was being with family. I'm Dr. Rich Sill sit-standing O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, research that could lead to vision restoration. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me in the studio today is Rose Pasquale. She's a neuroscience PhD student who recently received the top prize in a poster competition from the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology. She's going to talk with us about her research. Thanks for being here. Yes, it's great to be here. Now, your research is on how rod and cone pathways in the retina process visual information and allow us to see. But remind our listeners, tell us uh, about the eye. What part of the eye is the retina and what do the rods and cones do? Yeah, sure. So the retina is the light-sensitive tissue that's in the back of the eye. And the rods and the cones are the photoreceptors that are responsible for sensing this light. Uh, so the rods are typically thought to be able to see very dim light conditions and see slow-moving objects, while our cones allow us to see brighter lights, faster-moving objects, and also allow us to see colors. Okay. Neat. Well, tell us about your research. 
So my research is currently focused on trying to figure out uh, what more detail about what these rod and cone pathways are doing and how they're contributing to vision. So this is important so that we can start to understand and figure out how to restore lost vision um, in cases of degenerative disease. So I'm currently using a tra transgenic mouse models in which we can remove rod or cone function and we can see how those aspects are contributing to vision. And I'm using a behavioral assay to test this and we've actually gotten <clears throat> some quite interesting results um, in this process. Just learning what the rods can do without the cones and the cones can do without the rods? Exactly, a, yeah. Huh. So what we found is actually that the rods are able to do much more than we previously thought. So they're able to be active at much brighter light levels and they're able to track much faster moving objects than we, we had thought before. Huh, so this is starting, this is really transforming what we think in the field about how these rod pathways are working. And this could provide some, some future insight into how to improve retinal's prosthetic devices um, to restore lost vision. Does your work get into anything with the brain? In other words, the eyes don't work independently the brain's involved too, right, with vision? Yes, so. of course. Um, so I haven't looked into that into too much detail, but the behavioral assay that we use is a, is a perceptual assay. So there are a lot of assays that have been done previously to our work um, that tests just reflexive responses or just records responses of, of individual cells in the retina, but that's not really representative of how we perceive objects. So that's where our work sort of comes in, and it, it, it brings the whole perceptual aspect in. Now, what's an assay? Uh, it's, it's, hmm. so it's in the laboratory. Yeah, so it's an experiment, essentially. So it's a, <clears throat> a behavioral experiment that we do. Okay, interesting. Well, looking, what is sort of the end result that you're looking for in your research? What do you hope, you know, if you could fast forward... Um, years, decades. Mm -hmm. um, what do you hope to be able to do with what you're working on now? So with what I'm working on now, and one of the goals in vision research in general is to be able to restore vision loss to disease, because right now, it's, it's, we don't really have good treatments to prevent vision loss or restore vision loss. So I'm hoping with what I'm learning uh, about how rod circuits are functioning, that I will be able to contribute to finding better ways to restore the lost, to restore lost vision. So most of the vision that's lost is um, to disease or aging? Um, mm -hmm. Yes. There could be usually. others, but usually it's It's disease. usually disease, uh, and most, the, the leading causes of vision loss are all diseases related to age, such as age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, um, cataracts, etc. So a lot of people, um, maybe if they're not, dealing with this now they may in the future and exactly. they don't know now that exactly. they might in the future mm -hmm. so interesting well do you think there, there will be a time in your lifetime where people won't have there won't be like permanent vision loss I'm hopeful that there will be in my lifetime um, um, right now like I said one of the major goals in vision research is to restore lost vision so um, 
that's where a lot of the research efforts are focused. That's where a lot of the, the funding for vision research is going is to research, for you know, aiming to restore this. So it's, it's something that we look to in the field um, find better solutions for within the next 30 years. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neuroscience PhD student Rose Pasquale. Um, so how did you get interested and involved in vision research? Did you go to, um, what did you do in your undergraduate? Um, so in my undergraduate, I, I mean, I come from a very small town, so I was very, I was interested in science. That's what I knew going into my undergraduate degree. But beyond that, I wasn't really sure. Um, but I had a lot of professors um, and research advisors there who really encouraged me to move forward um, and look into a research career. So when I came here to Upstate, um, I, I started to do some research within the Center for Vision Research um, here at the Neuroscience Research Building. And I, I found that this was a very strong community and that by addressing um, issues in vision research as it's part of the central nervous system, um, we're also learning a lot about, you know, it can it can it can help us learn a lot about how the the brain functions as well. So, it, it's a very broad field. It's a very interesting. So, in uh, your PhD, um, uh, you should have next year. You're in your last Hopefully. year. Hopefully, okay. <laughs> it's and very you, unpredictable, but. But you plan yes. to stay in research and. Yes. Okay. Um, well. Just looking in vision research in general, not the, not what you're working on specifically, but in general, um, is there a lot of genetics that's um, being looked at, or do you? Yes. So most of the uh, diseases associated with vision loss are associated with um, some sort because of genetic, of genetic. Uh, condition. Um, so there there is a lot of work going on um, trying to to treat these diseases with. Um, processes like gene therapy, for example, where if you know the uh, genetic mutation, then you can go in and fix that specific gene. Um, there have been some clinical trials involved with that with um, diseases such as retinitis pigmentosa. So it's very exciting uh, field going forward. What about um, prevention? I know you're dealing a lot with um, hoping for restoration, but um, are there efforts underway to prevent vision loss in the first place or yes so that's a that's another um goal major goal in vision research is to you know catch these sort of things early and um, work to be able to prevent further uh, vision loss i mean ideally that that would be the goal um because it's better to prevent something from happening in the first place than trying to go in and fix what's gone wrong so what's happened. What about um, artificial intelligence? Is there any sort of interface with some of the advances and things that people are looking at with artificial intelligence? Uh, yes, so there they actually um, there are some retinal prosthetic implants uh, that are in the market. Um, they when you lose your vision completely, generally you would be a candidate for that. They're and, already on the market. Uh, yeah, they they've already been tested in patients. Oh. Um, Maybe not on the market, but but the, the retinal they're implants, out there. They're yes, just, okay. yes, they're they're out there. They've been they've been tested in patients, and um, they are able to restore vision in the sense that the patient is then able to maybe see light and some shadows, 
um, but they still are not able to, you know, see crisp detail. They're not able to read. They're not able to, you know, recognize their, their family's faces. So, I mean, part of my goal is to, by understanding the circuitry and what each retinal circuit is doing, what each rod or cone pathway is doing, maybe we can improve these prosthetics. So improve um, the the con uh, perception of contrast per, per, and uh, things like that. So That's interesting that there's some advances to, to at least do the, the light and, yeah. and things, but uh, maybe there's a lot more to come in I that. I hope so. <laughs> Are there other areas in vision uh, research that you see emerging? Um, I think, uh, as we talked about earlier, um, currently gene therapy is, is one that's moving forward very quickly. Um, the few, the, a few of the original clinical trials, um, have been tested in children, um, and people are now working on improving these gene therapy techniques and using them for other retinal diseases. Interesting. So. Well, great. This has uh, been Upstate's HealthLink on Air. My guest has been Rose Pasquale. She's a graduate student working on her PhD in neuroscience. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Sometimes our suffering seems endless and without reason or hope, and sometimes a poem, while not fixing the situation, can at least show others what we are feeling and perhaps invite compassion. Jason T. Lewis directs the Writing and Humanities program at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Here is his stark poem, Agricultural Report. Blighted ovum, fertilized crop unable to yield. I am a little more dead, you dying beside me. Us, dust bowl, spinning years into stripped barren proximity. I saw the light go out in your eyes, terrible whiteness, infecund, the fetus is dead. This is our report from Great Middle West. Michael Getty from St. Louis, Missouri, describes his wish to provide comfort in the most disturbing setting. Here is his poem, Visit. I arrive in thready fear and tiptoe into your latest address, finding only the top of your head peeking out of a stiff cotton cocoon, jealously guarded by dangling egg sacs of monsters that could return at any moment. One step closer now, I see their tentacled stingers digging into your neck, into the back of your hand, into flesh gone purple from their many bites. If I approach too quickly, they will draw you tighter. They will suck the very marrow from your tiny bones. I slip gingerly to your side, under their gaze, and sing a halting, wordless song, written, I think, to go undetected, except maybe by us. I heard it once when I got lost, somewhere between hope and surrender.
This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on Health Link on Air, learn about Lyme disease and one of the fastest growing low-wage occupations, home health aid. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.